Today, Pastor Javen begins a new series called The Ethos of Jesus, where we will look how Jesus changed the culture of the world around him. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. Dallas Willard wrote a book called Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he talks about growing up in rural Missouri. Uh, it was in the early 20th century. It was, was a time when there was no electricity. Everybody basically lived off of kerosene lamps and lanterns and ice boxes. That's what they had in their, in their homes. And then one day it happened, the local electric, uh, electric company comes into town and they start running electrical lines uh, through the town and they provide a new way of living for people, Willard says. And Willard says it this way, he says, it's almost like they came into town and said, repent of your kerosene lamps, your lanterns and your ice boxes and embrace this whole new way of life, a life that is marked by electricity, <laughs> a life that, that, that is now available to you. But he says that oddly enough, uh, people did not, not everybody accepted this new way of life. They, not everybody accepted electricity and wanted to live with that power in their homes, which we would probably find that odd. We would say, why? Right? Because that's what we're used to living with. That's what we know. That's what we, that's what we want every day. But they didn't want to embrace that because the way that they lived and the way that they lived their life is now being changed and everything they knew about it was being changed. Their whole understanding of how to live their life and how to live in their homes was being changed. Essentially what was happening is their ethos was being changed. Ethos is defined as a characteristic spirit of a culture, an era, or a community. And that spirit is manifested in their beliefs and their aspirations. When Jesus began to walk this earth in the eastern part of this world, in Judea and Samaria, he came to this world to reflect an ethos that was quite different than the one that was being lived at that time. And he came to give an ethos to his followers that was very different than what they knew. See, Jesus stepped into a world that was very dark, a world that was marked by basically legalism and hedonism. <laughs> it was a world that was marked by a belief that, okay, well, you got one group of people that just did whatever they want to do. It was full of sin. It was full of debauchery. It was full of all kinds of things. And you got another group of people in this area and in this culture that they said, well, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to live in a way that it's marked by my own efforts and by what I can do on my own, right? But Jesus came bringing the kingdom of heaven with him and he came to demonstrate a whole new powerful way of living. And he, and he changed everything about what they knew. So over the next several weeks, as we journey towards Easter, as we get closer to the end of March, when we celebrate this holiday of Easter, we're going to see the culture that Jesus encountered. And we're going to see the culture that Jesus called his disciples to embrace. So we're going to journey with Jesus as he journeys through these, home, through these towns and his hometown and other areas leading up to his death and leading up to his resurrection. Now, this clip that we saw from The Chosen, uh, again, there's, there's a little bit of artistic liberty that's being taken here and how they demonstrate this, but the meat of what's being said, what you're hearing being recited, that is called the Beatitudes. It is the beginning of what has famously become known as the Sermon on the Mount that we read in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus begins to express everything that he's calling his followers to. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's calling them away from one way of thinking into a new way of thinking. And when he starts his message off, this is how he starts it. Begins 
expressing all of these thoughts. And it's like he's drawing the listeners in to what he's saying. And as he draws them in and expresses these thoughts, then he hits them with why he's come. He wants to let them know why he's here and why he's on this earth. So go with me to Matthew chapter five. We're going to read a few verses from where Jesus said, this is why I've come. Matthew chapter five. We're going to look at verses 17 to 20. He goes on after he talks about the Beatitudes and after he talks about salt and light, he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. He said, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But then he says this, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so these are some pretty strong words from Jesus, and this is him expressing why he's came. So in this passage, you're seeing the ethos, ethos that Jesus has created. And then you're seeing how he is calling people to relate to him and to follow him. And so he's saying, I've come to basically change the way you understand everything that you understand. Because most of them who were trying to follow God, follow Yahweh, Elohim, who were living their life according to them, according to him, then they were living their life according to the law. So what was the law? The law is what God gave to Moses to give to the people. We see it when we read the Old Testament. When we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus. We're seeing the law that was given from God to Moses to give to the people. The law could be divided up into basically three different categories. There were moral laws, there were civic laws, and there were ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws are what you did to kind of in, to, to mend your relationship with God and in other different, to offer thanks to God and offerings to God and all these different things. So what was the purpose of all that? Well, Paul gives us some insight on what the purpose of the law was. So let's jump to that real quick. And all what we're doing is we're setting up all of this, okay? So we're, we're setting up where we're seeing what Jesus is talking about today and where we're going over these next couple of weeks. Galatians chapter three, Paul begins to, to, he's talking about a lot of different things. I'll explain the context to you in a second. But he gets to the, to the meat of what the purpose of the law was all about. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 24, he says this. He says, why was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. If you were here in our Genesis series, we talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham and that covenant, how he ratified that covenant with Abraham on his own. And then he says, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Paul says, absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scripture declares that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Then he says this, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, 
we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. All right. So now it's helpful to understand the context of Paul's letter and who he's writing to. He's writing to the church in Galatia and he's letting them know there's a group of people that are telling the Galatians that, that there are still ceremonial laws and festivals and things that you have to follow. But primarily what they're getting at is they're, they're telling them that you also have to be circumcised in addition to believing in Jesus in order to be saved. And Paul is writing this letter and telling them, no, there are no ceremonial things. There there are no festivals. And there is not circumcision in addition to believing in Christ that saves you. Right? In fact, he was so hard on this. In his letter, he goes on to say, the people that teach that, I wish they would go all the way and castrate themselves. That was Paul's wording. Okay? That's not what I said. That's what Paul said. But he's very clear that those aspects of the law, that you don't have to do those things in addition to being saved. You are saved by faith alone in Christ through the grace alone from Jesus Christ. So what was the purpose of the law? Well, Paul says that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin for what it was, to point sin out, to say this is sin. The law points to the fact that we are prisoners of sin, that by our human nature, we are prone to sin. The nature that we have inherited from Adam and Eve all the way down through the generations, that's the nature that we're inherited. And that nature is a prisoner to sin that the law points out as sin. The law then was our guardian and our teacher is what Paul is saying. So Jesus tells them that he's come to fulfill that purpose And accomplish that. And Jesus says that there is, so when you look at what he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and what he teaches in context, because you keep going in Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter seven, everything that he's teaching there, he's showing this following thing. He's saying there is value in what the law shows, especially the moral and civil laws. There's value in what those things show. But now in him, there is a new covering over your life. There's a new understanding on your relationship to that and to God. And there's a freedom that now comes from the sin that law points to when we are in Christ. And that's what Jesus has come to do. That's why verse 20 in Matthew chapter 5 is so important. When Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm telling you that that your righteousness has to be better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Well, how can that righteousness be better? Because the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and what they taught was everything that they did to obtain righteousness, which basically was a self-righteousness. Jesus is saying the righteousness that he's come to offer is his righteousness. He's He's going to put his righteousness on us when we believe in him and what he's come to do for us. So essentially when we choose to follow Christ and we receive his righteousness, that righteousness is better than a self-righteousness. That righteousness is better than us trying to live and obtain things based on our own efforts and our own doing. Now, 
that does not mean that following Jesus Christ negates the call to live a life that honors God. Again, you keep going in what Jesus taught and he takes things like murder and adultery and he intensifies them. You've heard you should not, thou shalt not commit a murder. Where did they hear that? In the law. He says, well, I tell you, you shouldn't even hate your brother and sister. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. Where did they hear that? In the law. He intensifies it. I tell you, you shouldn't even lust. He intensifies it. Right? So he's calling us to a life that still honors God. You keep going in Galatians and you see where Paul says that that's why we need to live a life that honors the whole, that honors God, a life that follows the guidance of the Holy Spirit, a life that follows him. And when we live a life according to the spirit of God, then we inherit everlasting life. If we live a life that is honoring and pursuing our sinful nature, that flesh, those desires that we are prisoner to, if we live a life that honors that, then we're going to harvest death and decay is what Paul says. That's why he says in Galatians chapter five, a life that's bound by flesh and pursuing those desires is a life that pursues sexual immorality. It pursues lust. It pursues drunkenness. It pursues hatred. It pursues greed. It pursues all these different kinds of things. In his other letter to the church of Rome, he says, since we've been saved by grace, does that mean that we keep on sinning? No, there's still a life that honors God and lives up to God. And when Jesus walked this earth and he was asked to sum up all the law, he said, well, I can, you can sum it up this way. Love the Lord God with everything that's in you and love your neighbor. And before he went to the cross, he, he, he showed us what loving your, each other meant. He said, love one another the way that he has loved us. And that was sacrificial. And guess what? When you love one another... And you love God with everything that's in you, you're, you're going to end up doing all that we were called to do back in the law. <laughs> I'm not going to kill somebody because I understand love. Right? I'm not going to steal from you because I love you and I love God and I want to honor him and I want to please him and I want to live my life for him. The ethos of Jesus, it confronted legalism, it confronted hedonism, and it confronted antinomianism and libertinism. What are those things, Javen? Antinomianism and libertinism are basically hypergrace beliefs. They believe that if I'm saved by the grace of God, I accept the grace of God, that means I can live however I want to live. This is a statement from... From that belief system, this is the statement. This is one that's popular and comes through that, through that belief and that ideology. It says, free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. That cheapens the grace of Christ. It cheapens what he came to do for you and for me and for all of us. What we have to remember, what we have to understand is that Jesus, John tells us this from the very beginning of his gospels. Jesus came with grace and what else? Truth. The truth isn't always comfortable. We don't like the truth. We don't like what the truth calls us to. But that's why he also came with grace. He came with grace and truth. See, the problem with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees was that they pretended, they intended to promote external righteousness first. 
It's all about external righteousness, all about what you do. It's all about how you look. And the thing was, the problem was that religious activity and religious conformity was leading people to believe that you had a form of godliness in your life. But religious activity and religious conformity is not a, is not godliness. It's a mask that covers a phantom faith that exists in your life. It covers what's really happening on the inside of your hearts. And Jesus would look at the Pharisees at one point in time in his teaching, and he would call them hypocrites and say, you're whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside, everything looks great, but on the inside is nothing but death and decay and dry bones. Jesus came with an ethos that focused on internal transformation. It focused on the heart and it wanted to change what was on the inside of you. So then, then in turn, it would transform the entire person and what you did on the outside. It would change your words. It would change your actions. It would change your deeds. It would change your thoughts in your life. It would change how you do everything. It would change how you live. Jesus focused on transformation. And you see, that had been God's intention from the very beginning was for it to come and, and transform who, the, who his people were. But now Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of heaven with him. And when he called people to follow him, he called people to discipleship under him and under his teaching. And when we follow him, then that becomes a bridge between our inner life and our external life. And so we get to these beatitudes and these beatitudes are statements that show the kind of characteristics that should be produced in the disciple, in the follower of Christ, in the one who's living their life to to honor God through Jesus Christ that's living according to the ethos of Jesus. And when he begins his teaching, he doesn't begin with a list of laws. He begins with a list of blessings. He says, you're blessed when you do these things. You're blessed when you live this way. You're blessed when you live according to this belief system and this mindset. And this belief system, this mindset, this ethos, it confronted the world they were in. It confronted everything about the world they were in. It confronted their pride with humility. It confronted their hard-heartedness with brokenness. It confronted their self-righteousness with Christ-covering. It confronted their vindictive mindsets with mercy. It confronted their manipulative spirit with pureness of heart. It confronted their divisive way of living with peacemaker. It confronted a life of complete acceptance and tolerance with a life of conviction. Jesus was demonstrating a culture that was upside down from everything that they knew and everything that they thought. It was in direct contrast to their world. And where does he start? When he opens it all up and he starts, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or I'm sorry, blessed are the poor poor in spirit, pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says it in the message Bible. He says that blessed are you when you come to the end of your rope. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? What does poor in spirit means? It means that you rely on a daily dependence on God for everything. You realize that you are insufficient on your own, that there is nothing perfect about you. 
You might be saved by the grace of Christ, but you are saved by a perfect grace, by a perfect Jesus under a perfection of what he's done. But you are insufficient on your own. And you have to have complete dependence on God every day of your life. It's not dependence on myself to provide for myself, to to have wisdom on my own, to, to get guidance for my own life. It is a complete dependence upon God. You think about the way we live our life. We live our life trying to be completely self-reliant, right? We live our life where we can, we don't have to depend on anybody else. I can take care of myself. I'm completely reliant upon myself. We live our life in a way that we want to have control of everything that's happening. Have you found out yet that you don't have control? We can lose control at the drop of a hat. It it doesn't take long to lose control. But that mentality that says, I want to have complete dependence. I want to be in control. Now listen, there's, a, there's an aspect where as a child we grow up and we learn independence from our parents and we learn to be able to do things on our own, but we never become independent of God. And the attitude that thinks that we can be self-reliant and do everything on ourselves, that attitude corrupts our spirit. Because at the root of self-reliance is a spirit of pride. And you cannot be full of God and full of yourself at the same time. That's impossible. You can't do it. There was a Christian apologist, writer, theologian. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His name was G.K. Chesterton. And during his time when he was living, a newspaper put out a question in their, in their newspaper and invited answers back to them. And the question was this, what is the problem with the world? Now, you know, if that question was asked today, it would be posted on social media by some news outlet somewhere and everybody and their brother would have the opinion, right, of what the problem with the world is. And they would all be sharing their answers to what the problem with the world is and all that kind of stuff. That didn't happen in this day, but people wrote their answers back. G.K. Chesterton wrote his answer back and he sent it back to the newspaper and he said this. He said, the problem with the world is me, signed G.K. Chesterton. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he didn't necessarily mean just him, G.K. Chesterton. He meant the problem of the world is the deeper meaning of the word me. It is the selfishness and the pride that lies in that, that lies within him that he had to battle. And it's what's inside of us that lies within inside of us that we have to battle on a daily basis where we're constantly focusing on me and who I am. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, when we are full of pride and we have this self-reliance, then what happens is we live in this endless cycle of comparison and competition with others. We're comparing ourselves with others constantly. We're competing with them constantly. And what's happening is we become self-focused. We become self-promoting, right? We become ungrateful and we become entitled. But God deliberately designed the gospel in a way that causes us to strip ourselves of every bit of pride within us and lead ourselves to a place at the cross of Jesus where we have no grounds of boasting in ourselves. And that grace that we get through Jesus comes 
from an act that he did from us that was one of the most insane acts of humility where he put the world ahead of himself when he died on that cross for us and for our sins in order for us to receive his grace. But you know, it's hard for prideful people to receive grace because grace requires us to do two things that prideful people don't like to do. It requires us to admit we're wrong and it requires us to admit that we need help. And we don't want to do that in our pride. We don't want to admit when we're wrong and we don't want to say, I need help. But for our life, we have to have Jesus Christ and we have to say, I'm a sinner and I need you to live this life in a way that honors God. So blessed are the poor in spirit. And this, this is the posture that we have to begin with. A posture of great need in Christ. I truly believe that's why Jesus started it with this, started his whole list with this. Because that's the posture that we have to have when we approach him. That's the posture that we have to have when we live every day of our life, when we wake up every day. That's the posture that we've got to have when we embrace every other characteristic that he's about to lay out for us. Is a posture of great need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. We won't spend as much time on every single one. But he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Those who mourn, that means that you have a willingness to enter the pain of others. Let's be honest. Other people's pain is sometimes inconvenient for us, right? That's why we have to be poor in spirit. But blessed are you when you enter the pain of others, when you mourn with others, when you are relationally connected to other people that you do more than just sympathize with them, you empathize with them and what they're facing and what they're going to. And you are blessed when you do this. You are eternally comforted when you comfort others. Blessed are you who mourn, Jesus says. He says, blessed are the meek. What will happen with the meek? They will inherit the earth. Again, we're striving for things. We want to gain things. We want to exalt ourselves and push ourselves up. But we have to understand that we were not designed for just ourselves. We were designed to pour ourselves out for others. We were designed to leverage what we have been blessed with in order to exalt someone else. That's what we're called to do. And when you take that role, here's what happens. Here's what scripture tells us. God exalts you. God blesses you even more. And blessed are the meek because you will inherit the earth. How different would your life be and how different would your life look if you always put yourself second and you let God take care of you? Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. They will inherit the earth. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. So there has to be a hunger and a thirst in our life for righteousness. Righteousness is a right way of living. This is a way that honors God. This is a way that's pleasing to him. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But remember, he redefined righteousness. Righteousness is him. So what he's saying is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more and more of him. Do you crave your relationship with God more than you crave anything else in this life? 
Do you hunger and thirst for him? Our lives are in constant pursuit. We are constantly pursuing something. We're constantly going after something. And we're going after things that we believe are going to bring us value. And we believe are going to bring us joy. So we go after these things. We're constantly pursuing these things. But the fulfillment that we're looking for only comes in a pursuit of the one who came for us. When we go after Christ. We looked at this last week at the end of our Signs of the Time series. We said that Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity on the inside of all of our hearts. That there is a desire in us for something that is eternal. There is a desire in us for, uh, for eternity. But here's the thing. All the earthly desires that we have in this life, those earthly desires are not going to be fulfilled in any other way than by, than by an eternal love. That's why we have to pursue Christ above all those other things. So what Jesus says in his teachings, and you see it through the gospel, you see him point to these types of things. He says that money's not going to do that. It's not that there's anything evil about money. It's not that it's a sin to be wealthy. And if God blesses you in that way, that's not a simple thing. The thing is that the pursuit of money to gain joy in your life and to gain fulfillment in your life and to be satisfied in your life, money's not going to do that. Only pursuing Christ and pursuing his righteousness is going to be what satisfies you. Romantic love is not going to be what satisfies you in this life. Right? I mean, I'm married. I love Jenny. We have that. But that is not what's going to bring us ultimate satisfaction in this life. It's the pursuit of Christ and his righteousness that's going to bring us satisfaction. The approval of other men in our life, that's not going to bring us the satisfaction we want. It's only the pursuit of Christ and his righteousness that's going to bring us the satisfaction that we want in this life. When you become passionate about God, you will not only be fulfilled in your life, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up bringing life to others through the Christ that's in you. Blessed are you when you pursue righteousness. Then he says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Listen, Jesus said that his ethos is one that extends forgiveness and extends the generosity of mercy and grace in the same measure that it's been extended to us. And it's not the same measure that's been extended to us by other people. It's the same measure that it's been extended to us by Jesus Christ. Consider this question, because Jesus goes on and talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Consider this question. What if God forgave your sins according to the way that you forgive others? When you show forgiveness and mercy and grace to others... It demonstrates that you, one, have experienced that grace and mercy in your life. And two, what it does is it demonstrates that grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to others. So blessed are those who are merciful. Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So to be pure in heart means that you're doing everything you can to not allow sin, I want to point up, sin, and not you either, but sin (laughs) to affect you. Because what happens is sin, sin distorts the way you see everything and sin distorts the way you perceive God. 
Sin distorts the way you see the world because the more you're pure in heart, the more you will be able to see the world the way God sees it. The more you'll be able to see things the way God wants you to see them, value things the way God wants you to value them, love the way that God wants you to love. The more you understand the will of God, the more pure you are in heart, the more you understand the will of God. That's why Romans wrote in Romans chapter 12, he said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that your heart becomes more and more pure. And then he says that you will begin to understand the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God in your life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. To be a peacemaker means that you value a relationship more than you, be, more than you value being vindictive towards someone because of something they've done to you or because of belief that they have. It means that we value the relationship that we have with someone more than we value just being right. It means, it, it, it means that, look, you might have a different opinion than me. You might have something, a different, uh, a different idea. But look, I'm, I value this relationship enough that I'm going to love you even though I don't agree with you. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Now, does that mean that, that we don't have convictions? No, more on that in just a second. Does that mean that we allow ourselves to be abused and run over and things like that? No, Jesus, not, Jesus did not teach that. But it means that you understand the importance of relationship with others. And if you do anything to be vindictive or divisive, then what's going to happen is you're going to tear you're going to bring a tear in that relationship and you're going to hurt the opportunity you have to minister to them through the love of Jesus Christ. So blessed are the peacemakers. For they'll be called sons of God. And then he says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs are the kingdom of heaven and their reward is in heaven. What would you be persecuted over? You would be persecuted over the convictions and the stance that you have in Jesus Christ and in following him. You're, you're, you can become persecuted over the, the beliefs that you have that are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his word. You have convictions that you stand on and beliefs that you stand on. And those convictions do not sway because those convictions are in Christ. Those beliefs, according to his word of how he's called us to live and what he's called us to. I cannot accept certain sins and I cannot tolerate certain things, not because I don't love, it's because of my conviction. And I might be persecuted for that, but I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm not going to be divisive over it in the sense that I'm going to bring hatred and condemnation. But I understand I'm going to love. But I understand that just because I don't agree, I may be persecuted. But Jesus says, blessed are the persecutors, or those, or those that are persecuted, for their reward is in heaven. See, so we look at these beatitudes and we look at this list and, of things. These are characteristics that point to who Jesus' disciples are. That's why I love this clip from The Chosen. When, when in this clip, we don't see this in the Bible, but it, it does express the, um, the, the heart behind it all. That when he's telling Matthew in this clip that it's a roadmap and he says, how's it a map? He says, well, those that are looking for me will find people like this. What is he saying? He's fine. You're finding people that carry the ethos of Jesus. 
you're finding people that represent him and represent his culture and who he is. We cannot look at these things as eight, uh, eight, eight rungs on a ladder that we climb to get to a certain place and a certain destination. No, we look at these as a grateful response to Jesus who, so to speak, came down that ladder to meet us in our greatest need. Someone, someone has made the statement that C.S. Lewis was approached one time and, he was, and, and they told him, they said, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. And C.S. Lewis's response to them, it said that his response to them was, well, no one likes the sledgehammer that destroys their home. No one likes the comfortable way of living that you have to be confronted. But see, what these things do and what, this, what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount does is it helps us see our need for grace. And then in that need for grace, it's our response to that grace of how we live. And then Jesus says this in Matthew chapter five, we saw him reference this in the clip. He looks at him and he says, you are the salt of the world. or salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He says that when you live according to the ethos of Jesus, when you live according to this belief and this culture that I'm calling you to, you will be salt and you will be light. So basically what Jesus is saying is that you will become a change agent. You will become a divine influencer in this world because the ethos of Jesus is not just about personal fulfillment. It's about living that out and making kingdom impact. And he says, you're salt and you're light. What does he mean by salt? Salt in this time was an incredible commodity. It was one of the greatest commodities on the earth. The sun was like the first. Salt was the second. Rome would would often pay people in salt. That's where the phrase, they're not worth their salt, came from. They would pay people. It was a great commodity. But you think about how salt was used then and how salt is even used today. Salt was to preserve things. Salt would purify things. Salt, for us, it, it, uh, it creates thirst. The more salt we have, the thirstier we get. Salt defrost, right? What do we do on the roads when ice is coming? We put salt on it because it defrosts. Salt heals. What do we do when we got cuts on us and we're lucky to be at the beach? We get in the ocean because the salt will heal those things. Again, in the message Bible, it reads it this way. It says, you are the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. So what what Jesus is saying is that we are to point to the soul-preserving grace of Jesus Christ that purifies our heart and purifies our life, that creates more and more of a hunger in us for Him, that thaws and softens the hardness of our heart, and that heals our souls. You're the salt of the earth. Then he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill. That word set means destined or appointed. In other words, with God, there is no accident. You are where you are at the time that God wants you to be where you are. And for the purposes that you are there. You are in the job that you have because of God. He opened that door. He's put you there. He has a purpose for you in that. There are doors opening for you. 
because God is opening those. He's got a purpose. He destines these things for you and for your life so that when you're in them, the purpose is for you to be salt and to be light while you're there. And think again about the context of this. Understand the context that they, Rome built cities on hills so that people would see them and would notice it. And the whole concept of the light and what Jesus was saying, when he goes on, he says, don't put a bushel over your light. When they were in their homes, they would light these candles. And when when they would leave out of the room, sometimes they would put bowls. History tells us over these, but the bowl would have a little hole on the top. The bowl would help from any outside wind blowing that candle out. The hole on the top would keep the light from being snuffed out. So they would cover that light when they leave so that wouldn't happen. But when they come home, they uncovered it because they needed the benefit of the light. Jesus is telling his listeners, don't ever cover your light because people need the benefit of the light that's on the inside of you. And I've put you where you are so that people will see it and take notice of it. The world is impure. So it needs followers of Christ. The world is dark. So it needs followers of Christ. The world needs followers of Christ who are humble, who are broken, who are meek, who are merciful, who are pure, who are peacemakers, who walk with conviction and beliefs. And they need people who are covered in Christ. The world needs followers of Christ who embrace the ethos of Christ. This is what Jesus has called us to. Stand with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what Matthew did listen to Jesus saying. And he took that teaching that Jesus taught and he didn't just keep it to himself. He wrote it down. And it began to circulate. And it began to go to multiple cities and multiple places. And Father, we now, even still in this day, have it within our word that points us to you, that points us to Jesus Christ. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this teaching of Jesus of what he's called us to. So we do ask that, Father, that the more and more we follow Christ, the more and more this will be produced in us, that we will be a people who are humble and broken and meek and merciful and peacemakers who walk with conviction, God, who who are pure, Father, in our heart and that carry the covering of Christ, God, in our life, in everything that we do. God, help us to represent you and to reflect you in this life because the world that we live in, people lost without you, it's a dark world, God. But Father, we want to love them and we want to show them the love of Christ. We want to show them the grace of Christ. So help us to do that. And Father, I pray today if there's anyone in this room, either watching or being in this room or watching or listening online today, God, that has never 
stepped into a relationship with you, Father, I pray today would be that day that they would understand that that following you means believing that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that he was the son of God, that he gave his life on a cross, that he died and he resurrected. And he did it for us. He took our place and gave us grace. So Father, I pray today, if there's anyone that's never done that, that they would believe in you and then they would confess with their mouth that you are Lord of their life. That they no longer want to try to have control. They no longer want to try to do things on their own. But that they would submit themselves to you and follow you. And make you Lord of their life, God. Today, let it be the day that they believe in their heart. And confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, as we all do that, let us live in a way that brings you glory way that is salt to this earth and light to this world. We thank you for it, God. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We pray the word encourages you. Go be catalysts for transformation. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.